Lucky people are often lucky because they assume they're going to be lucky, so they actually take action. Now is the time to take action. Just go for it, you know? It'd be so easy to just you know, wait for the next train. Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello. Today, I'm looking for some inspiration from Dr. Kayan Krippendorf. In many of the conversations I've had over the last few weeks, people have been looking at their strategy and wondering if their strategy needs some sort of tweak Will customers in the next six months be more defensive? Does that mean their positioning or their go-to-market or their brand promise with guarantees need a tweak? Some clients I've spoken to really feel that the coronavirus is going to accelerate some trends that were already in place, and maybe they have to move even more quickly to put together new products and services and get them out to new core customers. So that's what I'm hoping to get from Kayan today. And I, and I got, we talk about what tools he uses with clients, mainly Fortune 500 businesses, which could be used in mid-market firms. And towards the end, he has a fantastic strategic planning grid, which he says are the top two takeaways. He overla- overlays what he took away from two of the talks at a conference they ran, a conference they ran last week for charity. And he overlays those and he comes up with a two-by-two two matrix for strategy planning, which I think is scenario planning, which I think is fantastic. Great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, my name is Kyan Krippendorf. I'm the author of Outthink the Competition and the founder of Outthinker. And what I do primarily is help organizations capture the insights and emerging strategies that they can apply to their business so that they can uh, outthink the competition. So they can be the disruptor rather than the disrupted. And what drives, so how do people get to you? I mean, do they do a Google search for help with strategy? Um, yeah, they, 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 they look for, if you look for a strategy keynote speaker, then I come up a lot. And a lot of my work is, um, is, is keynote speaking. So in, in, in strategy, if you're looking for strategy keynotes, then I come up. And so you, your, your customers might hear you speak and then press a business card on you. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a particular size of customer that you, is sweet spot customer that you work with or industry you work in? The customers that I work most easily with are different than the customers that I necessarily like to work the most with. I mostly work with large Fortune 500 companies and I run this peer group of heads of strategy from big companies. I really enjoy working with mid-market companies, you know, 50 million to 200 million US revenue. And uh, I, I have not figured out how to market to them uh, effectively, let's say. And so most of my work is with big, big companies. And what do you have a 
standard set of tools that you take that you take people through? Yeah, so I've been I've been developing tools. So I've got a um, I forget who said it. Um, all models are wrong, but some are useful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, I like to think of my approach as uh, being a useful framework. It's not the truth, but it works very well. And when people go through it, they come up with very disruptive ideas. And all of the tools I put together in this process that I call the outthinker process, and there are like five steps to it, and there are five sets of tools for each one. You know, but, 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 but when I find something that works, I test it in workshops and with clients and then mostly simplify it, remove things or remove things to make it something that hopefully is easy for people to apply. Okay. And so people have got a bit more ha- time on their hands at the moment and thinking about certainly clients I've been working with have been thinking about getting back to work in the next few weeks and, and if their strategy is still serving them well. So what, what are the five what are the five steps that people need to to go through? I mean, they should go and buy the book, I guess. Yeah, they go buy the book. <laughs> I, I, it spells ideas, I-D-E-A-S. Imagine is really like uh, stepping into the future and designing your strategy from the future rather than the present. Dissect is about dissecting your business and looking at what elements of your business model are most critical to focus on now. Expand is about expanding your options expanding the the hypotheses you have on how you might change your business or business model. Analyze is about selecting those and overcoming the tendency to throw out the really disruptive idea because it looks impossible. And sell is about building buy-in and support from your stakeholders. This could be your, your board, your employees, your partners, et cetera. And so those are the, those are the five steps, I-D-E-A-S. Do people get stuck primarily at one place? Yeah, I think each of them force you to think more strategically than many of us, including myself, have a tendency to do. I would say the two areas that I find the most challenge with is under dissect. I believe there are eight different areas of your business from, and I, I, I make them P's, but you know, we often focus on product. And maybe sometimes we think about positioning, who's our core customer and our product. And so we tend to focus on those two. And if you like look at Silicon Valley people, they talk about this product market fit. And so it's all about getting the right customer with need with the right product. But then we overlook or we just default to the obvious ways of doing pricing or placing or distributing our people policies, our processes, our physical experiences, all the other elements. So it's helpful to like take this list of eight and I have a list of eight, there might be nine, but you know, just stepping back and looking at all of the leverage points. And the, the second place where I see people often uh, kind of where the rubber hits the road is under analyze when you're sorting through the ideas. So you kind of move from this state of uh, under expand, it's about ideation and brainstorming. And then you get to this point and you're sort of like, okay, so what are we going to do? And we, we often are scared away from the very different idea. And so I find you can get someone to think very differently, uh, but when you get to the point where you're choosing what you're going to commit your time and your money to, there's a strong, strong pull to just doing what's been done before. <laughs> you know? Yeah, sort of re- almost a regression to the mean. Exactly, exactly. And, those, and, the, and the thing that stops us from, from embracing something other than the mean is, is 
not even uh, a willingness to analyze whether this idea could work because we look immediately for evidence in our mind of it working before. And so we will tend to then gravitate to what has been done before. So it really takes the, uh, some um, courage, let's say, to take this idea with a millions of reasons why it won't work, identify what are the three big reasons that we think it's difficult, and then narrow in on those and break down how we could take what seems impossible and make it possible. And that step is one that just takes mental energy and time. Well, and also, I suppose the one thing about larger clients is that they can create a team to go and do that. It's like sort of burning your boats, right? You know, you've only got one mission, it's to do this. You've got, you know, in mid-market firms, often the people who need to execute an I- a new idea are often the people who are already doing business as usual. That's the way typically I see it work best is when you can give an isolated group of people like a skunk works project. They're not then fighting against the white cells in the organization and the inertia in the business. But are there, are, are there other ways that you can, you can take a ridiculous idea and turn it into reality? Yeah, I think that understanding business models and how they work, maybe using some of Alex Osterwalder's lean canvas uh, methodology, if you're familiar with that, I think that's a really important skill because so business model, the term business model was introduced around the 1950s when um, Peter Drucker said, strategy is about what business you're in. And then the term business model got popular in the 1990s when the dot-com boom you know, penetrated and people were designing new business models from scratch. And what's interesting now is that people are recognizing that a business model is not what we serendipitously fall into, but we can design them. So I think that one way to help you know, combat those white cells, those um, that um, – innovation antibodies is by training ourselves to look at our idea and thinking about what are all the different business models that we could put around it and finding a business model that's less likely to be rejected by your company. So that skill set, it's not hard to learn. It's just a practice. Uh, Then you can really kind of get through, you know, some of those white cells, as you call them. And why is it so hard as human beings for us to be strategic, do you think? Because it seems to be quite rare. Yeah. So in the, after I wrote Outthink the Competition, a book that I published uh, in October was Driving Innovation from Within. And it really talked about in large businesses, how do you get ideas through and what are the barriers? Uh, and there are seven barriers, but I think one of them is what I'm describing here is that it, the idea gets rejected because the person with the idea says, we're going to slap this business model on it because it's the right business model. I don't care if it is inconsistent with our existing business model. Another big thing is that many people don't understand what the company's strategy is. Less than 55% of mid-level managers can name even two of their company's strategic priorities. So what you have is you have people that are asked to innovate, and then they innovate in the wrong places with the wrong ideas, not ones that are ones that the company will, will gravitate to. And then I would say the third one is seeing the political challenge as part of the problem-solving process. 
And that's a big differentiator between successful internal innovators and frustrated ones. It's kind of frustrated ones say, I've got this great idea. I've built the perfect mousetrap and there's something wrong with my company and my boss that they don't love this idea, <laughs> right? But the ones that really enjoy it, they actually enjoy that 3D chess game of figuring out where is the island of freedom inside the company that I could take this idea that the right combination of leadership and structure and culture and talent that the idea can really um, take root, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I was talking to um, Daniel. Um, God, I've gone completely brain dead. Uh, he wrote uh, 24 Hour Assets and um, the Entrepreneur Revolution. And he was saying he's just sort of entrepreneurial incubators, not, not from a sort of Silicon Valley tech perspective, but people who've been in industry for a long time. And he said his typical, his typical person is sort of late 30s, early 40s, and they've done 15 to 20 years in, in, in industry. And they know they've got this thing and their company just won't do it. So they take that knowledge out of the company and set up a business uh, because they're the, they're the frustrated ones. And they think it'll be easier if they run this thing themselves. Yeah, there's a trade-off, right? You run it with yourself, you have a lot more freedom, but then you have it's more difficult to scale the business kind of the, the the entrepreneurial challenge is is scaling the business after you found the solution the internal challenge is getting alignment on the solution before you can scale the business one of the guys that i interviewed for my book he is a hobie darling he led nike's digital business for a while and um, you remember the Nike fuel band, uh, which they eventually abandoned because Apple was building their Apple watch and their CEOs on the board of Apple. I think they kind of agreed that Nike wasn't going to pursue it further. But he he built that business. And what he said, it was it's kind of like aligning the cannons. It takes a long time to line up the cannons in a big company. But when they go off all in the same time, in the same direction, they create a huge bang. Yes. And so what, what sort of innovations have your clients been able to drive? You got some good examples? Yeah, there's, you know, there's some that I can kind of either mention the company or mention the idea. And in some cases, I can mention both of them. But most of them are like business model innovations. So there's one financial company that um, owns a lot of agricultural real estate. And so we did this session for them. And it was about how can we increase the value of their agricultural holdings? You know, they were looking at kind of like, incremental tactical things like improving the way that they they run their processes. But the big challenge with agricultural real estate is that it's not very liquid. You can buy and sell commercial real estate and, and residential real estate on the open market through REITs and things, but you can't do that with agricultural real estate. So the big opportunity for them was to create a ecosystem which there was like a market maker in which you could like start tracking different plots of land. You have to do all this stuff in the market to create the conditions that would allow agricultural real estate to start becoming a tradable commodity, right? So um, they did that, they, they started doing that, that led to them going into asset management, and now they are one of the 10 largest asset management companies in the world uh, through that beginning. Or another one of my clients is uh, Macmillan, they're a publisher, and they were worried about self-published authors that would write a book and they couldn't get a book deal and they would self-publish on Amazon. And what historically would happen is after that person, that, that, that author was successful, Macmillan would go to them and say, hey, congratulations, we'd like to publish your next book. And the author would say, great, I get to get published by, by a real publisher. But now increasingly, these authors were saying, well, I don't need you anymore. 
And so they were really worried, right, that their business model, what would happen if an author doesn't need a publisher? So they came up with this idea they call Swoon Reads. It's kind of a platform where would-be self-published authors will publish a manuscript. Now, they don't publish it when it's done. They publish it before it's finished. So it's not even a finished product. And the idea of publishing something that hasn't been fully cleaned up is, is counter to all, all the norms in publishing. And then they let readers interact with the author and give them feedback on the manuscript. And they actually are kind of co-creating the manuscript with them. Uh, anyway, long, long, long and short is they solve their problem. They create this like competition where the best manuscripts win and they get a publishing contract. And they've never had an author turn down their publishing offer. So, you know, they've turned this, this what could have been a fatal threat. They've turned it into a competitive advantage. That's a fantastic example. I think that's that one resonates more than uh, you know because any mid market business could see that and go okay that that's within our reach we could we could see that but creating a market for agricultural real estate you know yeah, that, that feels that feels like that feels like it's like a bigger a bigger thing a big another one's good for like a mid market company they they are this is a second generation woman owned company they sell safety equipment uh, like hazmat suits and gloves and things. And they said, look, what we do is we sell into the purchasing manager of a manufacturing facility. All that purchasing manager cares about is price. So it's a very low margin business. So they said, what would it look like to sell safety rather than safety equipment? And they bundled together. They took safety equipment and then they add to it OSHA compliance or you know safety compliance consulting and then safety training. And then they bundle it together as one service. They called it safety care. And so what you can do now is you go to them and it's, it's a little bit like if everyone's selling apples, you can't sell your apples at a bigger, at a higher price. But if you bundle your apples with dough and sugar and you make apple pie and you're the only one selling apple pie, people don't understand what is the price of the apples in the apple pie that you're selling. So they bundled this and from that, within six months, it became 10% of their revenue. Now it's much larger. But more importantly, their direct connection is not with the purchasing manager, but with the CFO. So they have much more bargaining power, higher margins, right? So that's a, I think that's a, another example of business model. Kind of, I call that create something out of nothing, create a new category by combining products to create you know, something at a higher level. But it's even looking at your customers and saying, so why is that purchasing manager buying safety equipment? Somebody, somebody has a higher order problem. We are competing at the wrong point of the, of the purchase cycle with the wrong customer. Yes. And so often, you know, I'm doing work with clients and we say, who's your core customer? And they don't really know. And they don't really know why people are buying. And so, you know, they, they, the, the idea of bundling or changing your customer, or, you know, all of those things, all of those are tools that, that many mid-market companies have at their disposal. Yeah, I agree. And, and that question of who is our customer and what is that ultimate need that we're helping them meet, that leads to one of the toughest questions, which is what business are we in? Starbucks, I got to talk to the president of Starbucks, the, um, Howard Bihar. He was Howard Schultz's right-hand man. He later on uh, went on to be the co-founder of Starbucks International, You know, which, which I, I forget what the... What was the chain in the UK when I lived there? 
Uh, it was called Seattle Coffee Company. Seattle that was, Coffee Company. That was a total rip-off of Starbucks. A total rip-off, and then, sat, and then Starbucks went and bought them. Absolutely, because yeah. they thought, well, if if we build a business in the UK that looks like Starbucks, it'll be really attractive to Starbucks when they want to come here. And it was, and it, it worked perfectly. It worked perfectly. So this guy bought, he you know he led the, the purchase of Seattle Coffee Company and others. And uh, I asked him, what was your big idea? He said, it was when we realized we're not in the business of selling coffee. We are in the people business. In other words, our customers are our employees. And our job is to create meaningful work for them. And so what that means is when someone comes to you with an idea of let's give stock to all employees, even part-time you know, hourly workers. If you're in the coffee business, selling, if you're selling coffee, that's a cost. But if you're in the people business, that makes sense. Right? Give health care. Because in the United States, we don't give health care to employees automatically. They don't have it. Um, what if we gave it to even you know, the part-time workers? Well, that makes a lot of sense if you are in the people business. <laughs> right? So being clear on what, what business you're in, which it comes from who's our customer. Their customer is the employee. Tony Shea at Zappos, he said, we were growing pretty well when we thought of ourselves as a shoe company. We really took off and realized we were a customer service company that happened to sell shoes. Yeah. It's a, just a different mindset. I was, I met, uh, I was chatting to a little while ago, chatting to the head of HR for McDonald's in the Republic of Ireland. And he said they had worked out that the single, the, the constraint in their business was the quality of the manager of a, of a branch. And they decided on their target customer in the same sort of same sort of way. They said, our target customer is now a kid who leaves school with no qualifications, who's 20 and realizes they need to turn their life around. And they'll, they'll come to us and they'll work for us for three years and then they'll go and get a they'll go and get a job, and we we're sort of the we're the education that they never had time for, and you know we teach them how to run a business, and so it's then that becomes that becomes what you're trying to do is you're in, you're in the business of attracting and retaining, for as long as you can, people like that, and that becomes your that becomes your point of difference or your your innovation relative to your competitors. Yeah, and if you roll that down into how we measure performance, how we measure our success, right? To maybe in that case, it's the number of people who come through and and get a bigger a bigger career. You know, I think that companies that stop seeing their employees as, or they stop looking at employee satisfaction, but they look more at employee f- self realization. That people don't want a job; they want somewhere where they can f- fulfill their better selves. You know. I also think that companies are moving. If you look at the 1980s, it was all about competition. Today, it's all about customers. I really think we're now going to be moving to it's all about employees. And in some countries like Germany and I can think of some others, that's been the norm. But I think globally, that's what companies are, are orienting to is our role is, our purpose is the employees. And it's it's interesting because in the UK, when I when I've – had anything to do with businesses which are unionized, you would think you'd think the unions were in the business of making a better workplace for employees, but actually it seems that lots of that innovation, employee innovation is just sort of snuffed out by by collective bargaining. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. How do you keep the real purpose alive? I, I worked at a nonprofit. I used to work at McKinsey and when I left and I wrote my first book, I worked at a nonprofit for two years. I was kind of ramping up my new business. And I went there and I thought, wow, everyone's going to be, this is going to be so exciting because everyone's there for the mission. We're helping children get into college that ne- whose parents have never gotten to college. We give them a scholarship. We give them a mentor. Um, but I was shocked to find how many people, for how many people was just a job? 
it just became about like, what's my salary and how little do I have to work? You know, uh, it's so easy to lose touch with the real purpose. Yeah, but it, but it's, I think because charities have at their heart a core purpose, which is often difficult for other organizations, you know, they've, they've got a mission. It's very then difficult when people volunteer to come to turn people away. You know, and I've done I've done some work for a number of charities. And in fact, that's one of the things that they were trying to retrofit some values and behaviors around because their their sort of their mission was attracting the wrong people or not the people the organization needed. Yeah, I think you gotta yeah, reconcile those two things. We um I've started following this uh thinker Fons Trompenauers. He's a, a a Dutch kind of leading thinker on culture. And what he says is basically culture is the reconciliation of a dilemma. Your culture is if you're choosing between profit or doing good, which do you choose? Now, how do you unify culture is you find a reconciliation between that where doing good is profitable. My wife worked at MasterCard and what the CEO there has done, he said, we are a force for good. Our business model is convert cash transactions into electronic transactions and we're going to capture our fair share that's how we make money but in this world beyond cash which, we're, which is what we're driving for if, if a drug dealer says dr drugs to your child that's going to be traceable a world beyond cash creates accountability it creates transparency it's a better world right so I think that's the magic. And I also think that that's another phase that we're entering here where we no longer choose between doing good and making money. And if we look at the young entrepreneurs, right, the, the social entrepreneurs, what they're driven by is solving a social problem, but making it a financially viable one, a sustainable one, profitably solving a social problem. Yes. The drive to electric cars wasn't solved by utilitarian electric cars. I mean, the electric cars have been around for ages. It was only when, you know, Prius came and, and it became part of your personality to be the person who drove a Prius and then, and then Tesla. Yeah. You know, solving, solving problems by making money. Yeah, you don't choose. I can be cool and I can drive a fast car and I can do good for the environment. It's not a trade-off, yeah. Um, so you've uh, you've been you ran an event uh, last week. Yeah, yeah, we ran an event last week. This is kind of uncharacteristic of us. I talk a lot about entrepreneurs need to be agile and go through the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act quickly. But we actually took our own medicine. We did it on Friday the thirteenth. Uh, it was a Friday the thirteenth. We said, "Oh my gosh, all my speaking revenue has dried up. What are we going to do?" And we realize other speakers also have this problem. Everyone's worried about COVID. Let's organize a virtual summit, two days, 20 plus speakers, 100% of profits to charity. And we just started getting these amazing speakers from, from Liz Weissman to Rita McGrath. We had a Nobel Prize winner in, in economics, Paul Krugman. We had uh, um, Whitney Johnson, uh, Sleem Ismail from, from uh, Exponential Organizations, the founder of Singularity. And we ran this summit. We ran one-hour Zoom sessions, one after the other, 10 to 11 hours each day, and we raised over 90000 US dollars. Now we're going to do it again on May 6th because there was so much demand, both from speakers. Uh, and so we have Roosevelt Moss Cantor, Amy Edmondson. We've got Scott Anthony. And what's exciting is uh, it's something for me to focus on, for our team to focus on right now. 
It's doing good. It's making, creating relationships. It's building our audience. It's building our brand. And I think that's going to be the beginning, the seeds of a new business model for us. So um, I, I'd love to, you know, if you can share in, the, in, your, in your, your notes or, or something. Uh, yeah, we'll put, it, we'll put it in the show notes and on the newsletter. Yeah, absolutely. It's only $99. And again, all, everything goes to charity. And so how does that, how does that become a, a new business model? Well, I think that, you know, the, uh, one of our speakers, Scott Galloway, he put it really well. He said that COVID is the great accelerator. All these trends that have been underway towards remote, towards digital, towards purpose, you know, away from in-person, you know, from, from brick and mortar retail, all of these things have been in motion. What COVID is doing is, is accelerating it. So we, have, we, we run these in-person sessions and I deliver in-person speeches, but we've been thinking about how do we move that to be remote and digitally delivered. And so this is now accelerating us to that. So we used to do these half day, 15 heads of strategy with a thought leader in person to talk with the thought leader. And we started doing them via Zoom. And now I think we can just move it all to Zoom and um, engage in new ways. One of our thinkers was uh, Bharat Anand. He runs all digital learning for Harvard University. And he did a session on how engaging people digitally is fundamentally different than in person because in person it's really about delivering content whereas in digital you are more enabling people to connect with each other and interact that's where the content gets created you know and so so we're kind of moving to that yeah yeah so you, you can't just lift the one paradigm and change the medium you've got to re-engineer it to get it to get it good yeah, he talks about like that businesses started off point to point. I manufactured something, I delivered it to you. And then with the internet, it went hub to spoke. I can now distribute to lots of people. But the next model is spoke to spoke, right? And Airbnb, Uber, the platform models or versions of that, the, the, the media companies that are surviving are the ones that are enabling people to interact with each other. But that paradigm is... Um, is, uh, as you said, it's hard to rip off the old paradigm, put the new one in, but spoke to spoke value. Okay. Very good. Very good. And what was, what was one of the top takeaways for you from, from the conference? So many, but, uh, our top rated speaker was Rita McGrath and she talked about, and the second top rated speaker was Amy Webb. And if I take those, their two lessons together. They said, basically we want to, you, you know, scenario planning. We want to think about scenarios. What you do is you take two different trends like COVID will take two years to recover or we'll get to the new normal in six months. Those are two extremes. And, um, you know, people will love digital and they'll want to stay, keep re working remote or there'll be a backlash and they want to be more in person, right? So you take these two and you create this like two by two matrix. And then you got four different scenarios and you think about what your plan is for each different scenario. Right? It takes a long time, but everyone's digital. It takes a long time, but people want to go back to in-person. right? And, and then the other two. And think through the plan for each one. And then if I layer onto that what Amy Webb talked about, she said, you can't predict the future. What you can do is you can think about what the possible futures are and put your organization into a state of readiness. So you're tracking the signals. So you know as quickly as possible which one of those scenarios is going to come to be. So those two, I think, are really practical things that we can all do. Take half a day, work out those scenarios, figure out what we need to be tracking every day to find out which one it is, come up with our plans for each one, and so that we can very quickly move 
when we know which scenario is going to come to pass. I think that that scenario planning tool is is really really that'd be really really useful because you can you can use the same tool to think about you know in that context it's about staff and the implications for your staff but you could do the same thing around various axes pick two axes that relate to customers or or product or you know whatever whatever the, whatever you're trying to yeah, you kind of brainstorm all of them and pick the two that you think are the most, because you can't do all of them. Then you end up with this like, one of my friends, he runs a call center business. They basically work for hospitals. So when you call a hospital and you need to make an appointment for a doctor, his call center will make that appointment. He's been wanting to go remote for a while. And now over, you know, the plan was in two or three years, we're going to go remote, you know, people working from home. But now he had to do it in three days. He bought the monitors, he arranged the internet access, trained people up. So he's already, you know, stepped into that 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 future scenario. The question is, at once people are comfortable going back to hospitals, is there going to be a this big backlog of people that want to go see their doctors for non-critical things and he's getting really busy? Or is are the hospitals going to start doing that in-house? In which case he needs to come up with something with a different plan. But even even then, it's interesting looking at that employees working remotely. Some people will be not wanting to go back to work because they've always hated their commute and they've really enjoyed working from home. Other people will absolutely hate working from home and can't wait to get back to the office, get back to work. And some people have been telling me that they miss their commute because their commute is when they sort of decompress or listen to audiobooks or podcasts and and they see it as a vital, a vital chunk of their day that at home surrounded by their wife and children, they find that impossible to schedule. Nobody, right. Nobody's prepared to just let them sit in a chair and listen to an audiobook for half an hour. Right. I know. Right. Well, maybe, yeah, exactly. How that, maybe, I mean, I'm just making this up, but let's say your extroverts are going to want to come back to work. Your introverts are going to want to keep working from home and like allow each of them to do that. It's a bit like when firms started doing Dress Down Friday. Because it accelerated, you know, because once once it meant I could wear jeans and a T-shirt on Friday, the Monday to Thursday thing was bullshit, which is we always knew it was bullshit. But now it definitely bullshit because on a Friday we can wear our own clothes. We don't have to wear the, the uniform anymore. Yeah. And now people, it's like, it's the same. Oh, you told me we couldn't work from home because it would never work. And, <laughs> and, and, now, yeah. and now all of this, it's bullshit. It's, you know, it's working. Yeah. And I think that also people, when when you used to work from home, you had to have like a nice background. You had to be dressed nicely. But I think now people, right now people understand. I mean, you even watch the news and you see reporters, you know, disheveled hair, you know, without a clean haircut, you know, working from their, you know, their, their living room. And I think our expectations are going to change. Maybe that becomes okay. Well, and also working, well, working from home was always meant skiving. I mean, that's what it meant. It didn't, it didn't mean doing any work. Yeah, right, right, right. When somebody said to the boss, oh no, Kayan's working from home today, people would always go air quotes uh, around working. He's getting his hair cut, he's at the dentist, he's having a new sofa delivered. There was never any work involved. No, that's interesting. I wonder if maybe working from home is working now because no one can get a haircut or go to the dentist. So you actually know you're working. <laughs> yeah. Well, all the all the mechanisms that you that you might need are are available. It's just people weren't. It's because if I don't know about you, but if I do a session and some people are remote and some people are in an office, they are the most disruptive 
they're the most difficult sessions to, to facilitate. Everybody in the office or every remote, that's okay. But it's that, it's that sort of hybrid is difficult because the, it's, the experience isn't the same for everybody. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, I agree. I, we, did, we, we, we run uh, in-person, mostly in-person ideation sessions, right? And when some people want to be remote, either we make one virtual table that's working all remote or we'll take each remote person will be on FaceTime one per table, right? That works if you got like five people and one person's remote. But you're right. If you got three people and three people remote, then the remote people just don't, can't, can't get a word in. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. And people just, you just forget immediately. You just forget that there are remote people. Yeah. Anyone, who, anyone who's been the only person on a conference call knows exactly <laughs> what that's like. And then you check out, you know, you're the remote person. Like they're not listening to me. So you start checking your emails. and Totally. And then somebody says, and so Don, what do you think? And you go, could you just uh, rephrase that for me? Exactly. <laughs> Playing for time thinking. Somebody's on, somebody's on WhatsApp going, Dom, the question was, let me bail you out here. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I call that the the email voice. You know, you hear someone talking, you know, they're actually like doing email or something. Yeah. Well, and that's why, and that's why this has been great. Cause I've said for a while to clients, look, you've got to go video, do video first. Don't, don't let people dial in on a conference call. It has to be video. And I think this has made, it's another accelerant. As Scott Galloway was saying, you know, it's just made these things more normal. I've been trying to do, you know, video calls with clients, I, I will schedule a video call by default. And I've been doing that for a while, but only now in when now that everyone's working from home, is it normal? Normally people would be going, can't you ring me on my mobile? I don't, why do I have to do video? Do I have to do my hair? No, I agree. I agree. I think, I think video for a lot of my work, video conferencing is more effective than when I fly somewhere to, to run a strategy session or a workshop. It's a lot of thinking to spend all day thinking strategy. If instead you break it up into five two-hour sessions and you spread that out, then you can do the thinking in between. I think re you know remote is more effective for strategy setting than in person, and I'm, I'm hoping that people will keep letting come you do out. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, if is there a? I always ask uh, guests this question: Is there a thing that you now know that you know you wish you'd known earlier? You know, I've been talking a lot about. The OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act, which is the source of agile and scrum, you know, and I, I talk about it conceptually, but now I feel like I know its benefits because we pulled together this summit in three or four weeks and we were the first ones out of the gate. Now everyone's doing these summits, but we had like the lineup that like everyone, I mean, people are shocked at the lineup we had. Nothing to do with us or, uh, you know, nothing. To, it was only due to the fact that we said we're going to do it fast, you know, so I think it's a little bit of a long answer, but the, but the reason I got this idea is I've been starting to research luck or read books on luck. And there's one story, this woman, she's about to miss her, her train and she can't get to the platform on time because there was construction. She's about to give up, but she says, you know what? I'm a lucky person. Let me try to catch this train. So she runs all the way around and goes down the other escalator and she gets on her train. And the message there is lucky people are often lucky because they assume that they're going to be lucky. So they actually take action. Now is the time to take action. Just go for it, you know? It'd be so easy to just, you know, wait for the next train. I love that luck stuff. There's, uh, I actually ask employees, uh, if I'm interviewing, for helping in clients interview, I, I say to people, how lucky do you think you are? And I say, we should only hire lucky people. Because lucky people, lucky people don't blame other people. 
out of any disaster, they find something positive and they're very resilient. And it's just, it's just fantastic. In fact, one of my clients was, he was on holiday with his family and he was, he was training for a triathlon. So he thought he'd do some box jumps whilst he was on a conference call. Anyway, he misjudged it and it was a stone bench and he managed to slam his shins on the stone bench, right? 48 stitches he had. Anyway, I said, that's terrible. He goes, it could have been worse though. I could have landed on my face. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like, and so it's like lucky people, you know, they just, you know, uh, an unlucky person would have just told you all about how bad that story was. And Paul immediately went to what is the positive of having slashed yourself and got 47, 48 stitches in your shins. That becomes a reinforcing, you know, cycle because you call events lucky, which reinforces the idea that you're lucky. So then you pursue more lucky opportunities and it becomes, whereas the opposite is you could find a reason why everything, even like good things in your life, you can come up with reasons for why that was unlucky and you could focus on that. Well, it's, it's interesting because I think, I think companies end up having a mindset like that as well. I remember reading a McKinsey report around companies that had implemented IT projects successfully and it was about 25% of them or maybe 17% of them had successfully implemented IT. And because they thought they could do IT, they did more IT. And the companies in the other co- cohort at the opposite end did an IT project and it failed. So they then believed that they couldn't implement IT projects. So they stopped investing in IT. And you just had this massive divergence over time because those, those sort of positive or negative mindsets become self-reinforcing in terms of behavior. Yeah. And that's, that's why learning is so important. I, I, I overheard that um, Jeff Bezos was once, once said like at a conference, people think that we are risk we're comfortable with risk. Actually, we hate risk. In fact, we're so against risk that we never fail. <laughs> and what he means by we never fail is when we fail, we always are learning and we look at that learning and then we turn that learning into something new. The people who try to create the uh, Amazon came up with a, with a mobile phone, they failed. That whole team then went on to take the learnings from that and apply it to Alexa, which was a huge success. You know, so I think if we can start looking at failures as the learnings that come out of these experiments. Edison's quote about all these failures, and he goes, no, I was just learning how to do it right. Yes, a thousand ways not to make a life. So you, uh, I guess you read a, you've read a number of business books. I, as I said to you earlier, when before we were recording, I, I recently re- reread Outthinkers, which I thought was fantastic. But you've got have all of those businesses succeeded a year, you know, 10 years on from when? You- oh, no, man. <laughs> I, I predicted, I predicted Netflix was going to go out of business and RIM was, and RIM, BlackBerry was going to rule the world. Well, actually, that's not quite fair. You said that Netflix will go out of business unless, because it's a brokerage. And what Netflix did is obviously took your strategic advice because that now it's the largest fun. manufacturer of content. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. The middleman will die, but if you can own the content or you can own the customers or both, like there are three ways to have a competitive advantage. You either own the customer, you either a sustainable advantage, you own the content, diamond mines, or you have economies of scale. You got to have one of those to sustain. And yeah, they, they went back to the content. That's, that's true. <laughs> the rim rule in the world. That was, yeah. <laughs> for women, their, their business model was so finely attuned to one customer that customer being the head of IT, and all of a sudden that IT customer no longer had decision-making 
authority because people could bring their own devices. So I think like the lesson there is, yeah, have a really unique business model, but have some resilience in your business model. Be To your very big point, at the point in the very beginning, know who your customer is. And when your customer starts changing, change with your customer. Yes. So what other business books do you, well, you've, there's Outthinkers. What have you, what's your most recent one? It's called Driving Innovation from Within, a guide for internal entrepreneurs. Okay. Oh, that's, so that's the sort of self-help guide for the guy with the great idea that his boss won't listen to. Exactly. Okay. Okay. And uh, so what else have you read recently or along the way in your journey that you think, you know, you think back to time and time again? I was thinking about, there are two books that I would say are the best books I've ever read, nonfiction books. One is an American facing, you know, leaning one called Americana, the 400 years of capitalism. But what it does is it lays out the history of the United States from the point of view of capitalism, like railroads, like canals, like electricity, right? And all of these innovators and how their inventions turned into businesses that shaped society. It blow your mind. And then the other one, I was in Scotland and I was just going through a, bo- a bookstore and I found this book by Ian Morris called Why the West Rules for Now. And what he does is he tracks the level of societal development back from 8,000 BC. And I, I won't give you the, the, the big, the whole thing, but, but he meticulously tracks how society, levels of society development have changed based off of information uh, power, um, war making ability, energy capture per human, size of cities. And what he shows is at the end, it, the lines go straight up. We really are entering an exponential environment where change is happening exponentially. And that means we're, we're headed for some big breakthrough in humanity. Oh, fantastic. Kyan, that's absolutely brilliant. It's been lovely to talk to you today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.